at our meals. I had no choice, no part in the choice of uh, topic. I'm sure they have many CDs to play. Uh, as soon as I heard the familiar voice of Fulton Sheen, I ran to the kitchen and said, you better give me the hot sauce because uh, he doesn't mince his words. And uh, it was very striking to me um, how, uh, well, not fortuitous, how providential it was that he should uh, speak so much about Our Lady, the theme of our retreat, and how specifically he should speak of Our Lady under the titles of the, the Litany of Loreto. So I was very struck by that. Um, I feel uh, that um, Bishop Sheen is uh, kind of my uh, supernatural stalker. He's been stalking me all my life. Um, now, I never got to see him or hear him in South Africa because um, in the South Africa I grew up in, television was banned. It was, we weren't allowed to have television. It was seen as a portal for evil in the family, which is hard to disagree with. Um, so I never got to see Fulton Sheen, but I did get to read him. And um, specifically, the following books uh, really made a tremendous uh, impact on me in my youth. His Life of Christ, in the first place, uh, really informed my earliest understandings of the gospel and, and how to pray the gospel and how to meditate the gospel, Fulton Sheen's Life of Christ. And then a very significant uh, part in formulating my vocation to the priesthood was that magnificent work of his, The Priest is Not His Own. Fulton Sheen's The Priest is Not His Own. And so um, I uh, really hero-worshipped him growing up. And then my first priestly placement was in New York City. Uh, I was sent to be the chief negotiator of the mission of the Holy See to the United Nations in New York. And um, I was housed in an apartment two doors down from where Fulton Sheen lived in New York when he was the, the head of the, uh, the propagation of the faith. And then um, I was wondering where I would say my masses on Sundays in New York, and I was invited by the Church of St. Agnes next to Grand Central Terminal, uh, which was Bishop Sheen's pulpit when he was in New York. So I had to preach from his pulpit. And um, even the street in front is called Fulton Sheen Way. And then um, after I'd been working there for about a year or two, I received a new colleague in the office next to me, Monsignor Hilary Franco, who had been Bishop Sheen's personal secretary. So I couldn't move left or right, I couldn't stand up to preach or lay down to go to sleep without being surrounded by Fulton Sheen. So thank you for that uh, choice, Mr. Foley. Um, I'm not sure if lunch will be silent. It'd be quite nice to talk at lunch, I think, after our retreat. But if anybody wishes to continue the conversation or to uh, ask questions or something, I will be happy to stay off after lunch and speak to you too. Um, somebody asked about the ostentatious ring that I'm wearing. It's my college ring from um, the University of Notre Dame, where I went to law school. Um, and the reason I wear it, I don't normally wear it in my ministry because 
Too many priests accuse me of auditioning for the role of bishop. Um, I'll tell you why I wear it. Um, when you make your act of total consecration to Our Lady, one of the suggestions is that you, you have some sign of your consecration. You'll see many young men will wear um, a chain around their wrist, uh, that, that they are a slave to the Blessed Virgin. Uh, and um, uh, I, I couldn't quite get my head around wearing a chain around my neck. So I decided to use my, my college ring because um, it's the ring of the University of Our Lady and the blue is a constant reminder of my uh, betrothal to, to her. Um, and now for the uh, meditation for this morning. Every month of the year has its own particular dedication. Everybody knows that May is dedicated to the Blessed Virgin Mary and June is dedicated to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Um, and I hope everybody knows that October is dedicated to the Most Holy Rosary of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, and, uh, and I'd like to make a special appeal to you. I think I did say something about the Rosary that uh, the exorcists have said that the Rosary is the most powerful weapon in your arsenal against evil in your personal life and in the lives of those around you. And those who pray the rosary are virtually untouchable by the devil. Please promote uh, devotion to the Most Holy Rosary, especially in families. You know, we, we really are maybe the first, maybe the second generation in history that no longer plays, prays the family rosary together. Even now, mealtimes as families are under threat. It's, it's difficult in the, mo in the modern world for families to sit down and have a meal together. But uh, the last course of your family meal should be not dessert, it should be the rosary. Pass around a dish with rosaries in it. Let everybody take their choice dessert. You know, the family rosary takes 15 minutes. It's 1% of your day. And uh, it kept Catholic families together through war and pestilence and invasion and famine and much else besides. Um, let's pray for a return to the family rosary. It's wonderful to begin this month of the Most Holy Rosary together here on retreat, uh, at a retreat center dedicated to Our Lady and at a retreat dedicated to her too. Apart from every month of the year having its particular dedication, every uh, day of the week also has its own dedication. And Protestants may scoff at Catholics and all their feasts and their liturgical seasons, but living in this way uh, has a particular purpose, just like praying the liturgy of hours, seven times a day and once at night. We are involved in the sanctification of time, as well as space. Those are the twin dimensions of this created reality, time and space. And every Christian readily understands the necessity of the sanctification of space. We're constantly sending uh, missionaries out to discover new peoples, new continents. And now, of course, the space race. And if we were to discover souls on other countries, you can believe that the church would be among the first to send missionaries. We understand the sanctification of space. When we climb Mount Everest, we plant a cross. 
when, we, when a farmer buys a new field, he puts up a wayside shrine. When Catholics build a new home, they put some sort of a sign on the home that it's a Catholic home. A little plaque of the Annunciation or the Holy Name of Jesus. How many crosses haven't we planted on every rooftop and mountaintop around the world? We, we understand very clearly the sanctification of space. But we are also called to the sanctification of time. And that's why we have these dedications of the months and the days of the week. But also, in principally, we have the uh, liturgy of, of hours, that every hour of every day in every part of the world is being consecrated and given back to the God who made it, because God made time as well as space. In those old missiles we used to use before the council, it was so chock-full of catechetical information that we encountered again and again and again, because we had to, because the liturgy was in Latin, so we were constantly engaging our missiles. There was normally a page near the front which showed um, how the Catholic Church is celebrating Mass at every hour of every day. Uh, and then they showed you Tel Aviv and, and Tokyo and, and Moscow and Sydney and all the hours of what that every hour of the day the work of the sanctification of time is taking place. So the days of the week are, have their dedications. Everybody understands that Sunday is the Lord's Day. In most uh, languages, the greeting for this day is Bon Dimanche or Bona Domenica, which means Happy Day of the Lord. It's a pity English doesn't have uh, an expression. But um, to wish somebody a blessed de Lord's Day, that's a beautiful greeting. Um, today is Sunday. It is, uh, in the order of the week, the first day of creation. God began creation on this day. It's the first day of creation. Um, it's not the seventh day of the week. Uh, in Latin, sabbatum. It's, it's not the Sabbath of creation. The seventh day of the week is Saturday. And the Jews rightly kept their Sabbath on the seventh day of creation as the book of Genesis commanded them to. Now there are some people who call themselves Christians who maintain that we should keep the Sabbath on the Saturday. We have some here in Lincoln, they're called Seventh-day Adventists. They uh, consider that we don't know how to read our Bible and we've somehow got it wrong. This is the reason why we, call out, we keep our Sabbath on the Sunday. It's not the seventh day of creation. Today is the eighth day of creation. The gospel tells us that our Lord rose from the dead not on the first day of the week, but on the day after the Sabbath. It's a very special formula, the day after the Sabbath. Because our Lord ushered in an entirely new creation with his resurrection. This is the eighth day of creation. At Easter we sing of this day of the resurrection, this is the day that the Lord has made, let us rejoice in it and be glad, alleluia. And then on Easter Monday we sing, this is the day which the Lord has made, let us rejoice. Well, which is it, Sunday or Monday? And then on Easter Tuesday we sing, this is the day which the Lord has made, let us rejoice in it and be glad, alleluia. Well, make up your mind. The day on which the sun will never set 
is the eternal eighth day. It is the beginning of the kingdom. Eternity already present in time. Sunday is the eighth day of creation, the Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath. From the very first week, Christians kept their Sabbath on the day of the resurrection. That's why the gospel keeps telling us, and on the eighth day, and on the eighth day, Jesus appeared. And on the eighth day also, uh, it was the 50th day after the resurrection, but it was still the eighth day, the Holy Spirit descended. Today is the birthday of the church, of that new modality of our Lord's presence among us. After he ascended into heaven, his modality, his sacramental modality of being the face of the invisible God, disappeared from us once more. And a new modality of Christ's incarnate presence continues among us. In the mystical body of Christ, which is animated by the Holy Spirit in the upper room, it receives its soul. The soul of the church is the Holy Spirit. The church is divine, not human. The church is Christ continuing on earth after his physical ascension into heaven. So all these things happened on this day of the Lord. Then we also know that if Sunday is the Lord's day, Saturday's Our Lady's day. Ladies' day. Ever since that first Holy Saturday, when the shepherd was struck, and the sheep were scattered, all of them. Even beloved John, he ran so fast he ran out of his cloak. One betrayed him, one denied him, but one kept the faith. She kept the faith. And on that day she constituted the whole of the believing church, she who is its mother. That's why she's in the upper room of the apostles. She's giving birth to the church that is the body of Christ. Because she is the mother of the whole Christ. Not just the head, but head and members. That's why the fathers of the church said, for the baptized to be other Christs, it's insufficient that they have only God as their father if they do not have Mary as their mother. She is the mother of the church. She's the new Eve. So what a joy it is for us to come together on a Saturday and a Sunday like this, at the beginning of this month of October. And to consider this morning the most sublime of all Our Lady's titles, the highest dogma of our Marian theology in the Church, the Immaculata. Cardinal Newman, in listing the four Marian dogmas of the Church, lists the Immaculate Conception in the fourth place because it had only so recently been dogmatically defined in 1854. He had listed the Assumption in the third place, even though it had yet to be dogmatically defined until 1950, 60 years after he died. Last night we paused to consider how this shows that the faith of the church, the sensus fidelium, is impeccable, is infallible. Even before the Pope, as the visible vicar of authority, 
discerns it and defines it formally as a service to the faith of his brethren. Because Peter's task is to strengthen the faith of his brethren, not invent it. His act is a kind of a recognitio, a recognition. Now, Newman lists it in the last place because of when it was defined, but really, the Immaculate Conception has pride of place in the Marian theology of the Church because everything else about Mary stems from this first fact, that she is immaculate. I hope I don't have to explain that the Immaculate Conception refers to the conception of Mary in her mother's womb, Anne's womb. The Immaculate Conception doesn't refer to the conception of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb at the Annunciation. I dare say it because there's a lot of confusion in our popular culture. Christ's conception in his mother's womb occurs miraculously using the DNA of only one parent, Mary. That's a miraculous conception. But that's not what, make, what makes a conception immaculate. Macula in Latin means stain. A stain that no descendant of Adam and Eve was capable of avoiding in the transmission of original sin at the moment of conception. None except one. There is an exception. Mary, most holy, the sinless one, the martyr intemerata. She is the one that Almighty God prepared in advance for the great fulfillment of his promise to our first parents when they were kicked out of Eden, when he gave them the promise of the proto-gospel in Genesis 3.16, when he promised that he would send a woman, a virgin with child, according to Isaiah, whose seed would crush the serpent's head. And all this was to take place, as St. Paul tells us in Galatians 4.4, 4, in the fullness of time, when everything had been prepared. And there was a lot to be prepared. The Lord had to pre-prepare three whole peoples for the coming of his Christ and his church. <coughs> the one that most easily springs to mind is the Jewish people. The Jewish had, people had to be prepared long centuries so that they would be a people devoted to truth, that great transcendental that helps us transcend the limits of our creation and reach up to our Creator. The good Lord also had to prepare the Greeks in their great devotion to beauty, that other transcendental that helps us transcend our limits and reach up to God. The Greeks who would give us <coughs> philosophy without which the church would never have been able to extrapolate or explain her faith. That's why every priest, apart from being a Jew, has to be a Greek. He has to spend a few years studying theology, philosophy before he can study theology. And thirdly, he had to prepare the Romans. There where Peter would take the faith that it would spread to the whole world, 
All roads lead to Rome, yes, because the Romans built them, but their greatest contribution to the church is their devotion to goodness, to virtue, the Roman law, the desire to codify human, human action in terms of what is good and what is virtuous. Using Greek philosophy and Roman law and the Hebrew Testament, the church had the three transcendentals in place in the fullness of time. But God also had to prepare a person, Mary Most Holy. I'll come to her in a moment. Because it might surprise you that if the Immaculate Conception is the most important dogmatic fact about Mary from which all the others stem, how come it took us 1,854 years to getting around to defining it? You see, there's a great problem to define the Immaculate Conception. The very chronology of time has to be suspended. Nay, not suspended, reversed in order for us to wrap our heads around the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. And this way of understanding it was a gift to the church of a Franciscan, blessed Dunce Scotus. After centuries and centuries of theological controversy on the issue of... Everybody believed the Immaculate Conception. But there was great controversy in how to explain it. The Franciscans tried one way, the Dominicans tried the other way. It didn't help that they were natural rivals as religious orders. <clears throat> the debate between them became so heated that at times the Pope had to intervene and say, like a good mother to fighting children, stop immediately. This topic will no longer be discussed in the church. We believe it, and that's that. We don't know how to explain it, but we're leaving it at that. Yes, our faith is a mystery, because it's faith in God, which is beyond uh, human capacities. That's why St. Augustine uh, was given the vision of the little child on the beach who had dug a little hole in the sand and was running to the ocean with a little conscious shell and running back and pouring it in the hole and running back to the sea and getting some more and pouring it in the hole that he had dug. And when he said, what do you think you are doing to the child? The child said, I'm trying to place all of that into here. And Augustine understood, in a sense, there is a certain, not futility, but an impossibility for us to capture God with our minds. Capire is the Latin word for understand, and it's the same word for capture, capire. We cannot capture God in this way. Our faith is a mystery. But at the same time, our Lord has equipped the creature he made in his own image and likeness with a rational soul so that we might have the natural capacity to grapple with these things. A natural capacity which is wounded by original sin, but which is supplemented by the gift of supernatural grace so that we can not only discern but attain understanding of these mysteries. It's not enough that we just believe. St. Peter the Apostle exhorts us in his letter to give reasons for our believing. 1 Peter 3.15 We must be able to give reasons to the world for the hope that is within us. Nobody ever doubted that Mary, to bear the Savior, could not have been sullied by any sin at all, personal or inherited. 
She had to be the sinless vessel of a perfect savior. But what had generated all that debate, debate, more heat than light, was the how we could explain it. Because there seemed to be competing dogmas in the church. Certain dogmas, it seemed, needed to cancel each other out to create a dogma of the Immaculate Conception. On the one hand, we have a dogma of original sin, by virtue of which every descendant of Adam and Eve's rebellion had transmitted transmitted to them the stain or macula of original sin, a congenital defect or wound in our nature. How do you explain an exception to this rule? Pelagianism was condemned as a heresy. Pelagianism was the belief that there were other ways to God outside of Jesus Christ. That somehow a person could be naturally good enough to get to God. And that makes the Savior not absolutely necessary. And his death, therefore, in a sense, in vain. So that's a heresy. And the monument of that heresy was the Tower of Babel. Men attempting to reach God. A project that was punished with the confusion of tongues and the scattering of mankind. What's the counterpoint in the New Testament to the Tower of Babel? Not an ascending humanity, but a descending God in the upper room at Pentecost. After which the church speaks with one language and all the peoples of the church are brought together, gathered together. The very word for church in Greek, ekklesia, means gathering together. God's intervention in the passion, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is the other dogma. Salvation by Christ alone. Salvation is not possible outside of Christ. So when we put these dogmas together, how then could Mary have been saved the transmission of original sin without Christ? She cannot have been. How could she have been saved by Christ, if Christ was born of her, not she of him? How could she be saved chronologically in advance of the saving acts of her son? So what we have here, really, is a problem not of theology, but of chronology. Now, man is shackled by the twin manacles of time and space. God is not. Indeed, we see this in a wonderful miracle performed both for Aaron, the high priest, and for Elisha, the prophet, when the flow of the river Jordan was reversed on its course. When Aaron led the people of God into the promised land, he struck his staff into the water of the Jordan so that they could cross dry shod and the Jordan reversed on its course. Did you ever see a river flowing upstream? Again, Elisha with his mantle calls, he throws his mantle into the river Jordan and it reverses on its course. The fathers of the church have always seen in this image the example of how God 
intervenes in the flow of history to change its course. Think about it for a moment as a symbol, as a metaphor. The River Jordan has its source in the sparklingly fresh waters of the Sea of Galilee, alongside of which Jesus was raised. It then flows downwards on its course, defining the frontier of the promised land, flowing lower and lower as gravity follows Earth's contours, until this river, unlike every other river in the world which empties into the ocean, the River Jordan never reaches the ocean. The River Jordan flows lower and lower until it reaches the lowest point on planet Earth, a basin from which there is no escaping, a pit, appropriately called the Dead Sea. A sea so dead no life can survive within it, no life can be sustained by it, on the shores of which stood two great cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, that were destroyed by a fire so intense that geologists have discovered just in the last couple of years that the earth is scorched to such a depth by some cosmic event such as a rain of meteorites, fire from heaven. This is a metaphor for the flow of human history from its bright and sparkling source in the Garden of Eden, lower and lower and lower into the pit of our destiny, which is doom and perdition, from which there is no escaping. It's an image of hell. That's why the book of Revelation says there will be no ocean in heaven, no salt water. Hmm? We're told in other prophecies that the water which flows from the new temple, which is the pierced side of Christ, will flow like a river into the ocean. And instead of its waters becoming salty in the ocean, they will turn the ocean fresh. It's an image for sin. Jesus of Nazareth had no need to be baptized. He did not there was no requirement for him to submit to the baptism of repentance of John the Baptist. He had nothing of which to repent. Why does he permit that he, is, that he undergoes the ceremony? Is it just a charade? Is it just a farce? Or is there something deeper in this image, in this symbol? The Orientals, specifically the Greeks, paint a very beautiful icon of our Lord's baptism in the River Jordan. It's three horizontal panels. In the upper panel, you can see the upper part of Christ's body sticking above the waves of the River Jordan. John the Baptist pouring water over his head as he is baptized. The middle panel shows the torso of Christ under the water, in the river itself, with little fish swimming next to his belly button. But the lower panel shows that Christ, in descending, is not satisfied to hit the ground like a ball and to bounce up again, having taken nothing of the earth with him. 
untouched by the encounter. Rather, Christ, when he falls to the earth, falls like a seed that burrows deeper into the ground, yet, not satisfied with remaining on the surface, he enters into our condition. The seed absorbs into himself the nutrients of the soil, so that when he rises and ascends, he takes with him what he got from the earth. In the lower panel of the Greek icon, Christ's feet are not satisfied with reaching the riverbed, but they penetrate deeper still into the pit of the underworld, where those who are in Hades see the feet of him who brings good news, and they reach up with hope and desire to grab onto the feet of him who brings good news. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Noah and David and Ezekiel and Elijah and Isaiah, all the way to Adam and Eve, all the just like Abel, who longed for the coming of their Messiah, who lived as if he was there already, they want to grab onto his feet so that when he is brought out of that river, like we pluck a carrot from the earth, clods of earth still cling to the carrot and come up with it. The corresponding image is seen in the way that we paint icons of the ascension of our Lord into heaven. He goes, and all we can still see beneath the cloud are his feet. And the disciples, his apostles, are reaching up into heaven with the same desire to cling to the feet of the Lord, that where he goes they too will follow, as he promised. And they think that they can do this by clinging to him by their own forces. That is the mistake. That is the mistake of Mary Magdalene in the Garden of the Resurrection when she falls at the feet of Christ and he says, Do not cling to me, Mary, for I have not yet ascended. After the ascension, the Spirit can be sent to animate the church. The Holy Spirit is the glue by which we adhere to Christ's ascending feet. Not our own affections or sentimentalities. It is by the Holy Spirit alone that we can withstand the G-forces of that journey. The Holy Spirit is the glue that glues the Father to the Son and the Son to the Father. The Holy Spirit is the glue that glues the humanity of Jesus to the divinity of Jesus in the Incarnation. That's why the Holy Spirit came at the Annunciation. The Holy Spirit is the glue. And the Holy Spirit is the glue that glues you to the feet of the ascending Christ. We are bonded to Christ in the Holy Spirit by baptism so as to become one body. Now in that Greek icon, the baptism of Christ is shown as something far more than just a charade or some submitting out of obedience or even some sort of a gesture of compassion. It's more than that. Christ in that scene is the mantle of Elisha, is the staff of Aaron that is plunged into the flow of the waters of the history of this world so as to turn them back on their course. Christ is the definitive intervention into history that turns the flow of history around, no longer inexorably lower and lower to perdition and doom. Now, with Christ's entry into that water, we can flow back on our course, back to the sweet and living waters of the original promise. 
The flow of history is turned. The flow of chronology is turned. I mention all this in metaphor because the church has defined by the Immaculate Conception the truth that Mary, though she is saved like any child of Adam by the self-offering of the God-man Jesus Christ on the cross for the sins of the world, she is saved not chronologically after those events like the rest of us, but rather by a singular grace applicable only in her case because it is a unique case she is saved chronologically in advance, by the same merits, but in advance of their happening, precisely so that she would prove a fitting and worthy vessel to give Christ his nature, his flesh, his blood, his heart, his DNA. That she could be entrusted by the Almighty with such an extraordinary task of giving the world its God. Truly, this is the Marian dogma most worthy of preaching, predicanda. And thus, Mary is the Virgo predicanda because, firstly, because she is the Immaculata. Cardinal Newman calls this the highest, the rarest, the choicest prerogative of Mary because she was full of grace in order to be the mother of God. The angel found her full of grace, and she was made thus in order that she may be mother. She was immaculate that she may be the mother. And that's why her immaculate conception is the higher gift even than her maternity. She is in herself the divine liturgy of the pre-sanctified. Of all the ways in which the Father prepared the world for the coming of his Son, he even prepared a person to be the honorable vessel of salvation. She is the vas honorabile. Our Lord began, says Cardinal Newman, even before his coming to undertake his most wonderful act of redemption, first in the person of she who was to be the mother of redemption. Newman continues, when Mary, who is to be proclaimed, is also called admirabilis, most admirable, it is thereby suggested what is the effect in us of this preaching of her as the Immaculate One. Those who hear this preaching wonder, marvel, are astounded and overcome by the preaching because this is so great a prerogative. It is absolutely singular. What a great reason we have then to call the Immaculate the Virgo Admirabilis, the most admirable virgin, or as Newman translated, the awful virgin, meaning full of awe. When we think that her ineffable purity rendered her capable of enduring the presence of an archangel, Whereas the great prophets like Daniel were smote to fainting and almost to the point of death in the presence of their celestial messengers, she was capable of enduring the presence of an archangel. To contain so great a treasure as was hers at the Annunciation, Mary had to be fashioned a house of pure gold, the new and the truer Ark of the Covenant. 
the truest tabernacle of the incarnate God who gives his flesh for the life of the world. A palace, fit for a king, standing beside the king in vestiture of gold. And for this reason, her very first title in the litany of Loreto is Sancta Maria. For God alone is holy, tu solus sanctus. And she is his unique and immaculate reflection or mirror, speculum justitiae. She is a holy creation. She is utterly unique in the history of the world. She is perfect in advance. She is a citizen of heaven already on earth. She who is heaven's portal, Janu Aceli. Of her we sing, Tota pucra es Maria. You are all beautiful, Mary. All her acts were perfect. Truly she is the tower of ivory, rising higher and shining brighter than any other member of our race. In this way, the mother resembles her son the way we say most children resemble their parents. The chronology reversed. <laughs>